You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right, raise your hand if you love to fish. All right, a couple people wish it was more because I love to fish. I can't get enough of it. This is what I do in the spring and summer before it gets too hot. I love to fish. I love teaching my kids to fish. It's such a good life lesson time, good fun together. And the truth is people have always loved to fish. As long as there have been humans, we've been pulling stuff out of the ocean, out of the rivers, out of the lakes. And um, just like they loved it in the ancient time, the internet loves it now. And the videos and pictures that float around the internet kind of have three different categories. And the first category is this, small child, big fish. And they kind of go like this. The children are scared and excited. He's been playing a lot of Fortnite and then bang, big trout. Or picture like this, the bass just about as big as the child. But then there's a second category of like, look what weird thing I caught, mom. They go, it's like this. Oh, I know. Yeah, he might be a bait fish, not for the dinner table. Or something like this. Or something like this. It doesn't even totally look like a fish. It looks like, I don't even know, like a dinosaur that got chopped in half. But then there's a final category of internet sensation fishing that is the overwhelming amount of fish that truly one net commercially can hold thousands of pounds of fish at one time. Or in a more terrifying way, take a look at this. This is a feeding frenzy of sharks that enveloped all around a boat eating a swarm of fish. And so that's kind of how the internet, these fishing things go. And Jesus's miracle fits right in there. The overwhelming catch of fish. After a night of professional fishermen catching nothing, Jesus tells them after preaching on the lake to throw your now clean nets back out into the lake. And Peter groans a little bit. He just had his crew cleaning the nets and here's Jesus saying, head back out. It's the wrong time of day to fish. We caught nothing, Jesus. So he obeys, but he obeys with a bit of a sigh. Verse five, it says, Simon answered, master, we toiled all night. And took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So they go out to the deep, they let down the nets, but immediately panic ensues, verse six. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, their nets were breaking, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both boats that they began to sink. If you've ever been in a boat, it takes a lot to sink a boat. They kind of float on top of the water. It can be so heavy. These boats are overflowing with fish. It's an overwhelming experience. It's a catch of a lifetime. The nets are ripping apart, yet Peter's attention leaves the lotto ticket of what's happening, and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. The excitement, the surprise, the joy of the catch all stops because he realizes what we should realize in every Jesus miracle, that it's not about the miracle. It's about who the miracle points to. 
that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. Jesus isn't just a, a moral man. Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a ruler to be, that Jesus is the Messiah. Meaning Peter's not just standing next to another guy in Galilee, but instead Peter is in the presence of God himself. And for Peter, the miracle hits home. He spent a lifetime trying to figure out this one lake, the Sea of Galilee. He's been trying to figure it out his whole life. He's been catching fish. He's successful. He has a crew, but he couldn't do this. And while Peter had felt the humanity of Jesus, Peter had come, Jesus had come to Peter's mother-in-law's house and healed his mother-in-law. He'd seen the humanity of this man. He'd heard wonderful teachings from this man. He was a person that God was apparently using to heal. But all of a sudden, Peter sees not just his humanity, but Jesus's otherness. That this man isn't actually like me. That Jesus is actually holy, separate, set apart, other, completely perfect in a way that starts to overwhelm Peter altogether. Verse eight captures it. But when Simon Peter saw it, he falls down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me, leave me alone. I'm not worthy for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All of a sudden, the bigness of Jesus starts to, to change. He should be dancing over being rich and doing a catch that outlasts a month of work. But he's not dancing. He's a little terrified. And this response, while strange, is very biblical. When we see Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin. And as soon as God and his holiness walks in the garden, they try to depart. They get behind a bush like that's going to work, but that's what they do. In Exodus 19, they finally see God, these freed Israelites, these, these Hebrews, they're, they're by Mount Sinai and suddenly God's presence manifests in power. It's thunder, it's lightning, and it terrifies them and they tremble and they, they say, I, I don't want any piece of this. How can I make sure I'm not too close to this? But most notably, we see this moment where the prophet Isaiah he experiences a vision 750 years before this moment that instructs what's happening right here. And what Isaiah sees is Jesus on the throne. Jesus, as he's been from eternity past, he gets a glimpse of what's actually happening in the universe. The most real thing in the universe suddenly crystallizes in Isaiah's brain. And this is what it says. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. We think at a wedding, there's a long train. This is a robe that fills a room like this and greater. There is a king of kings and above him stood seraphim, which had six wings, two covered his face, two covered his feet and two that they flew. There is a six-wing angel creatures going around the throne. This is something Isaiah has never seen and none of us have ever seen. It is a scene that would blow our mind and imagination to be in front of. And each of these seraphim, these angel wing creatures, are calling out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds, the temple, its doors are shaking at the voice of him who called. And the house 
filled with smoke. In this vision of God's holiness, the holy, 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 the emphasis on God's supremacy over the earth is just like Jesus' supremacy over the fish and the lake and all the demons he's cast out and all the healings he's been doing. And look at how Isaiah responds. He sees God's holiness. And what does Isaiah do in verse five? And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Remember, this is Isaiah. This is a prophet of God's people. He's like the leader. He's the man. He's the person hearing from God, speaking the word of God. But when he sees the actual holiness of God, he's totally broken. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He feels like he's lost altogether. The holiest guy in Israel goes, I don't, don't, we're not the same. And that's the moment Peter's having. Like we were the same and it was really cool what you were doing. But now I realize you're God and something different has happened. Isaiah continues, I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah sees the holiness of God and he immediately becomes aware he's not holy. Rather, Isaiah is sinful like all people. And instead of God crushing him or or vaporizing him, God atones for his sin. He purifies him with a coal on his tongue. So we see a God whose holiness makes us aware of our sin, but also a holiness that cleanses us of sin. It's a double move. We become aware we're not God, but instead of God pulling away, He comes close and cleanses us. And this scene with Isaiah takes another surprising turn. In verse eight, it says, and I heard the voice of the Lord, this cleansed person standing before God. The Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, the Lord, go and say this to the people. God in his holiness actually commissions Isaiah to go with God, to go with his message to the people. And this pattern is repeating right here with Peter. As Peter snaps into a vision of this is God himself in his holiness. This miracle shows him the truth. Verse eight, but when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Everyone in the crowd's amazed. Everyone in, of the other fishermen, they're astonished. But Peter is cut to the heart that God's holiness has made him acutely aware of his sin and his actual need for the savior, not just to do cool stuff, but to bring himself before a holy God where he is guilty. Yet look at Jesus's response. Remember, Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament and the New. Verse 10, it says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're starting to see the full truth and it's a little terrifying. But don't be afraid. 
And from now on, you will be catching men. Don't be afraid of my holiness, Peter, is the coal on the tongue moment for Peter. That Jesus' holiness brings an awareness of sin, but it will also bring a cleansing. Jesus doesn't say, oh no, Peter, you're not that sinful. You're really not that bad compared to your neighbor. No, Jesus knows he's sinful, but Jesus also knows he's here to cleanse and heal people, that he is the salvation of God. And he rather tells them fear isn't the response to Jesus's holiness. See, Jesus's holiness cleanses us of sin so that coming to Jesus in our need, in our repentance, we do become aware of sin, but we leave transformed and cleansed. When you come to Jesus with your need and sin and brokenness, you leave changed, not condemned. Without missing a beat, Jesus commissions Peter on the spot, just as Jesus commissioned Isaiah, saying, Peter, you've spent a lifetime as a fisherman catching living fish to bring them to their death on the grill. Now I'm going to make you a fisher of spiritually dead men and bringing them to life. He flips his vocation, he flips his direction, and this is the start of Peter truly believing. It won't be done until he sees Jesus resurrect from the dead, but this is the start of a journey of faithfulness following Jesus. And now he asks, in verse 11, it, it describes what happens and it says, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The biggest catch of Peter's life leads to, leads to him closing his business. He has the best day of business ever, and they just kind of drop everything. We're not really told anything more, but it says they choose to follow him. And the holiness of God is at work. The work of the gospel is at work. It looks like this. And you might be reminded of this chart. This is from our new member process. That's something you go through as you become a member at Citizens. And this is exactly what's happening right here today. That we grow with God by becoming aware of God's holiness in an ongoing way. As you start to understand and know who God is from the scriptures, truly Jesus, you start to be aware of how big and wonderful and perfect God is. But a second thing happens spiritually you start to become aware of your own flesh and sinfulness. And that is the, both the door and the way in to becoming a Christian. That's how you start following Jesus. You see your need for him and you see who Jesus is, but it's also how you keep growing. Because throughout your life, you keep growing in awareness of God and it should wear, grow to an awareness of how far from God we truly are. And then over time, the cross gets bigger and bigger as we realize Jesus is, bre is breaching the gap, that he's the bridge between these two realities. The gospel gets bigger and bigger and bigger for you. For Peter, the door opened right there. But the challenge is that we keep growing through our life that way. Because a lot of times we grow and we stop many of our obvious outward sins. Things that are just obvious, like, hey, those are kind of destructive behaviors. Hey, those are making your relationships a mess and you kind of stop those. But the truth is to keep growing, you graduate to addressing your heart. It's not just about getting some things right, but start asking yourself questions like, how much is my life motivated by pride and reputation and self-righteousness instead of love for Jesus? How much of my life is about proving others wrong over passion to follow Jesus? 
as outward sexual sins cease, but how free truly is my mind and heart from lust? How much does comparison motivate me other than the love of God? How often are my wounds driving me instead of a wisdom that comes from God? Those are deep waters that will go to the end of our life. But if you let Jesus get in the soil of your heart and start digging out the rocks, stop, start digging out the weeds a little deeper, there will be a beautiful garden of your heart of the fruit God wants to bring. That's starting for Peter today. Whether you don't know Christ, please know him. See that you are sinful before holy God and you need this Jesus who can save. But if you are in Christ, the sermon's for you too. That there's work to do. There's an invitation with God to continue to know him and to continue to grow deeper with him and see the gospel get bigger today for you. When we are free to actually grow with God is when we feel completely safe with God. When you're completely safe with God, suddenly you feel okay to take a look at your worst. And that magic can happen in community too. As you feel safe in your friendships and your marriage and friends, suddenly you're okay with saying, yeah, there's things that aren't right in here and I don't want to stay the same anymore. God's holiness has never been a curse. That's what sin is. Sin's the curse we stay away from. God's holiness is not a curse, but an invitation to life with God himself and that we can share this gospel onward. It is only people greatly changed that have something to greatly tell. And that's what's happening right here. Just as Jesus' holiness transformed a sinful Peter, so Jesus' holiness transforms a suffering leper. Look at verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, leprosy is, was, is used here as a word for all sorts of medical conditions that affect the sin, or affect the skin. To be full of leprosy likely meant this man is covered in raw sores throughout his body. Full of it. Not a patch of it, not on his arm, not, not, not an infection on the leg. It says he's full of leprosy, inferring head to toe. And these sores on your body meant you were ritually unclean, which meant a priest would have to come and tell you, according to Leviticus 13, you cannot come worship God at the temple because you are a leper. You must stay out of the community in general because you are a leper. You must live outside the camp, and in this case, the city itself, because you are a leper. And there are practical needs that leprosy was infectious and could spread, but also there's this ritual uncleanness. And it leaves this poor man likely baking in the sun day after day, swatting flies, unable to join the normal economy and hold a normal job or anything like that. Probably poor, relatively homeless, and alone. He's unable to have human contact. He's full of leprosy. It's probably not been a week. It's probably been a decade. And his life is careening towards infection and death. That this man is truly at the end of his life. He's desperate. He knows it. And in his suffering, he hears rumors of Jesus and gets a glimpse that maybe, just maybe, 
Jesus can help me. Verse 12. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face just like Peter and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper falls down on his knees like Peter and Jesus' holiness has given him hope in his suffering. The leper has heard enough to know that Jesus is able to heal. He doesn't doubt the ability of Jesus, but he doesn't know Jesus enough to know if Jesus will or wants to heal him. And what Jesus does is more than heal the man. He heals the man, but his holiness begins to transform him. Look at verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and did what? Did he just say, leprosy, go away? Did he snap his fingers? Did he clap his hands? He touched him. Man oozing with sores, forbidden to be touched by Leviticus 5. Jesus intentionally grabs this man, maybe the first human in decades saying, I will, I want to absolutely be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Leviticus said, any man who touches a leper, even the wetness of his sores would be unclean. In this moment, Jesus doesn't just help him, but touches him. He's maybe the first person in years or decades that sin and disease don't make Jesus unclean. But rather as God, Jesus's holiness cleanses the leper. The disease doesn't go up Jesus's arm. The disease leaves through Jesus's arm out of this man's body. It is a reversal of things. The holiness of God cannot be ruined by your uncleanness. Your sins are no match for a holy God. He has the ability to clean you inside and out and change everything about you, to bring you into the worship of God to bring you back into community, to bring you back to life. God doesn't pull back from our tears or our fears, but presses into us. Church, there is no safer place on the planet for your pain than the arms of Jesus Christ. He draws near to us. And the holiness of God makes us aware of our sin, but it also gives us hope in our suffering. The otherness of holiness is our hope that there's more than this broken world. There's not hope when we look around the world. Every system, every government, every every person you know, including yourself, is broken. Except one. Except that Jesus, that his holy otherness gives us hope that things can be different. The healing is possible. There can be a future. A resurrection can be true. It all hangs on one man. His otherness, his holiness is our hope. And we learn that holiness is not our distance from sinners. Holiness instead is our nearness to Jesus. You are holy as you are near to Jesus, not by who you hang out with or don't hang out with. You can be wise of who you hang out with, but it won't make you holy. Only Jesus makes people holy. And when we get that church, Jesus melts us all together because suddenly we realize we have nothing to bring to God. These people, have, they're not bringing their good deeds or good words. They're bringing a humble and broken, contrite spirit. They're saying, this is who I actually am, Jesus, and I don't have any other hopes. Great timing. Love it. Just... 
We're making a turn. We're now that church. <laughs> little magic, little sleight of hand. <clears throat> and once again, this experience of the gospel happens with the leper and Jesus commissions him. Verse 14, and he charged them to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded as proof for them. And now even more, the report about him went abroad and the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Jesus tells people not to tell people and then people immediately disobey Jesus and do the opposite. And what he's doing here, it's no big secret. He, he just, for a practical, the crowds were so great, word was getting out plenty. So he said, go and actually follow the law and go be a witness to the priest in the temple. Go to the temple and offer a sacrifice just like uh, Leviticus 14 says that if you are healed of leprosy, if your leprosy goes away, the priest is supposed to evaluate you and say, yes, you don't have leprosy. Now go make a offering and be welcome back in the community. And Jesus wants people to see, hey, I'm following the law, but I am indeed the fulfillment of the law. I can touch lepers. I am the final sacrifice. You priest, you can never make leprosy go away. All you did is look at people's legs and go, you have leprosy, you don't have leprosy. Jesus is the priest who actually says, and you're healed. He's proving his supremacy over the temple, over the priest, and fulfilling the law to the fullest. And it's a beautiful thing he asks him to do, and he goes and does it. And most people are like Peter and fear the holiness of God. We fear it because to be near a holy God is to face our sin. It's to look in the mirror cleanly and actually see this is me. Before God, there are no bushes like Adam to hide behind. There's no mountain to climb off of like the Israelites. You're left like Isaiah, overwhelmed by a beautiful Jesus, who's also powerful and perfect. Yet the great surprise of Jesus, that if you come to Jesus humbly, repenting of sin, we're not destroyed, but rather welcomed and saved by Jesus. It is the work of sin to keep you from seeing your own sin. That's sin winning the most. It is the work of sin to motivate you to try to make up for your sin by doing good deeds, trying to pay off some cosmic debt, trying to strive or prove yourself before a holy God. It doesn't make sense in light of a truly holy God. But it is the work of God to see our sin and then find our only hope is in God himself. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, perhaps the most famous preacher of the 1800s said this, sin injures us the most by taking from us the capacity to know how much we've been injured by sin. As you struggle to articulate maybe what you've done wrong or what would make you unholy, realize that's sin winning. Stealing your capacity for even compassion to realize sin is killing you. It's like sin robs us the idea of even knowing we have cancer and convinces us, no, you're doing great. When we might not be doing great. It's the holiness of God is like an x-ray that we go, oh my gosh, I'm full of cancer and there's only one cure. That's what God's doing. 
To meet Jesus truly is to be aware of your need for Jesus. Don't let sin blind you to your need for Jesus or bind you from coming to Jesus. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Throw yourself to your knees publicly or privately. Don't delay both for salvation and for the growth of your soul. The gospel is the only way forward, my friends. Jesus is a holy God. And the holiness of Jesus transforms us. And that's the good news. And when we come to Jesus in need, we leave changed. The way to miss Jesus is not to see your personal need for Jesus. And whether you feel the weight of your sins today or feel the weight and the pain of suffering, Jesus awaits with a holiness that heals. If you love the Lord of the Rings, it's the last truth of the book is that he's the king of all. He returns, but he's the king that heals the soldiers after the battle. Jesus does both. He wins the great battle conquering the demons, yet there's healing in his hands for all who come to him. Holiness is not distance from sinners, but nearness of Jesus. Jesus cast his net that day and caught the first few disciples. He's the fisher of men. Jesus is casting his net today, both to cleanse of sin and to heal us in our suffering. Will you follow him?